0: On this episode of The Historians, our guest has written what New Yorker's Jeffrey Frank calls the definitive life of Nelson Rockefeller, governor of New York State for 14 years, vice president of the United States for three years, part of one of America's most wealthy and influential families. The book is published by Random House, titled On His Own Terms, A Life of Nelson Rockefeller. The author is Richard Norton Smith. Good afternoon, Richard. Good afternoon. Rockefeller has been the subject of at least 10 other biographies, including one by Gloversville native and Rockefeller speechwriter Joseph Persico. What are you adding to Nelson Rockefeller's story that are not in these other books?
1: Actually, this is the first complete life, believe it or not. You're right, there have been a number of books, uh, actually a couple of very good campaign books. Uh, back in the sixties. And uh, and Joe Persico's wonderful personal memoir, and, and of course, Kerry Reich, uh, who uh, tragically left us before he could complete what he projected as a two-volume uh, biography. As a result, no one has ever yet uh, done the whole story in one volume, one reason why it's as big a book as it is. But beyond that, um, it is also replete with thousands, actually maybe tens of thousands of, of pages of newly available archival material, uh-huh. um, uh, plus interviews. I did over 200 uh, interviews uh, with people, and uh, so there's, there's actually a vast amount of new information um, that, for example, was not available to Kerry Reich when he was working on, on his biography.
0: Yes, fascinating stuff. Hope we can get in as much as we can. Uh, Nelson Rockefeller tried to secure the Republican nomination for president in 1960, 64, and 68. And I read in the New York Times story about your book by Sam Roberts that you were a teenage supporter of Rockefeller's (laughs) at the GOP convention in Miami. That's right. I
1: was at the ripe old age of 14. I was on the floor of the convention hall in Miami Beach in August 1968. And um, quite upset, I'd been doing my uh, calculations, and I realized we were going to fall too short. People don't realize Richard Nixon only won that nomination by 25 votes. And if Ronald Reagan had um, won a few more votes in the South, and a few people in New Jersey had been loyal uh, to the pledges they'd made to Rockefeller, history might have been very different. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I was there, and um, I remember we uh, marched through the Iowa delegation, which, as I recall, was a, a bunch of rather stalwart farmers for Nixon, one of whom I hit over the head with my Rockefeller <laughs> sign. Oh, and it didn't get us any delegates, but it felt pretty good uh, at the but, time.
0: I know. It, and this takes you way back, but what did you like about Rockefeller? Why were you a supporter at age 14? Well, I was
1: a, an annoyingly sort of precocious child. I'd been interested in politics, believe it or not, from probably seven or eight. And I um, have vivid memories. Um, of the scene that opens the book, that extraordinary night at the Cal Palace in 1964 after midnight mm-hmm. when uh, Nelson Rockefeller uh, stepped before a very hostile convention, the personification of everything um, that the new Goldwater majority detested and um, denounced political extremism. And then, of course, they made his case for him by trying to boo him off the platform, and it was something that it was the first real television convention, and uh, uh, Americans were not accustomed to seeing people behave like this. And of course, it made his point. I thought he was a, 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 a courageous. I thought to him, he was way out in front on civil rights. Mm-hmm. You know, this is the time of Birmingham and the March on Washington. And, uh, and Selma, uh, to be uh, very contemporary. And Rockefeller insisted that the party of Lincoln um, couldn't ever become what some people were already calling the white man's party. Mm. And that was just one example of, of the things that I, that I admired him for. Did now, before become... I did this book, and another reason it took 14 years, I had to outgrow that. In effect, Mm -hmm. I had to work my way through that Mm -hmm. um, because I I think you'll agree this is, in the fullest sense of the word, a critical biography. Uh, It's a biography that's marked by detachment and, hopefully, objectivity. Mm -hmm. And so that's part of the process, I guess, for any biographer. you're, You're drawn to a subject enough to spend your life and let him in some ways take over your life for however many years. But at the same time, you have to be sufficiently detached uh, and objective uh, to give your reader an honest, critical appraisal.
0: Mm. I, I read, I think it was in the Times, that you shook his hand maybe once or twice, but did you ever talk to him?
1: No, you know, I, later on I was an intern in the Ford White House, and he was then vice president, and um, much older. He, he, you know, and I think as the book suggests, he, he didn't necessarily age well. And, of course, he was a, a miserable vice president, which is a redundancy uh, <laughs> in some ways. Um, he wasn't happy in the job. And, um, and yet, you know, he still was that ebullient, um, kind of life-enhancing um, individual who, uh, who was in so many ways his mother's son. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Abby Aldrich Rockefeller is, is, um, is a very, very significant part of the story. Today, she would have been the candidate, you know, but <laughs> of course, so. that wasn't possible a hundred plus years ago. She, um, you know, I remember I was told a story when Nelson was born. She said to the rest of the family, all right, I've done my duty by this family. Uh, I've given you a John III. This one's mine. <laughs> and whether she said it or not, she certainly acted that way, and that's where his love of modern art she really mm-hmm. is the founder of the Museum of Modern Art, which the family still calls a mother's Museum um, <laughs> she She gave him his love of people, his curiosity about how other people lived his uh, his sympathy, his compassion um, for those who weren't as fortunate. Uh, as he was, um, remarkable woman, mm-hmm. remarkable son.
0: Mm. In our area, uh, which is the basically the Albany area, the area of the state capital of New York where he served as governor, it, it's still controversial uh, to some extent what he did in destroying many Albany neighborhoods in the sure. 1960s to build that huge government complex, the Empire State Plaza. They're, they're currently running on the local... Um, public TV station, WMHT, a documentary called The Neighborhood That Disappeared. Right. And people still fault him uh, for that. Reading your book, it seems, it's, it's typical of, of Rockefeller. He liked to rearrange things.
1: Yeah, well, of course, the critics even then referred to it as Brasilia on the Hudson. And and actually, they didn't know how, how close they were. Brasilia was, was one of the, you know, the, the capital of Brazil that was hacked out of the jungle. Um, was one of the uh, inspirations for what I think probably people still call them all. Um, The fact of the matter is downtown Albany was dying commercially, like so many, um, by the way, American cities in the 50s and the 60s. And, um, you know, at the same time, state government needed more office space. They had what they called the campus uh, the governors Dewey and Harriman had had built, you know, several miles out of downtown. But that did nothing for downtown. In some ways, you know, you, the mall could be seen as an extension of the urban renewal theories that have been widely discredited today, but which in the fifties and the sixties were seen as the, the only way to save uh, downtown America. But but of course, it was it was much much more than that. Mm-hmm. Um, it was. Rockefeller Center North, um, and I think in the end it was as much as anything um, all about abstract expressionist art. Remember, it's not just the, the art in the collection that Governor Rockefeller distributed throughout the center. The whole center is, in fact, a work of abstract expressionist art set against the Hudson River and the surrounding mountains. And, you okay. know, he, remember, he was dyslexic.
0: Yes, that's and true. To that a, I, I must say, reading your, your book, I, I never, because I used to work in, I never actually worked in a state agency in the complex, but I didn't yeah. work for the state and it was downtown. And, I, you know, reading your book, I found I understand why all that uh, abstract art is in there. I mean, it's in the Empire State Plaza. It's not oh, hanging sure. it on the well, walls.
1: Yeah, I mean, he was, he was also, he was not only a great collector. Remember, you know, one of, this is a man who had so many interests. If he'd had fewer interests, maybe he would have been more concentrated on becoming president. Uh, who knows? But, I mean, one of them was art. Um, he had a press secretary who, who wondered out loud if the American people were ready to elect a president who knew Picasso. Um, and, you know, that's actually a rather profound question when you stop to think about it. But um, he, was, he was a great teacher also. You know, he'd been involved with the Museum of Art during its formative days. And that carried on. He, uh, the New York State legislators, of course, he filled the, he filled the executive mansion on Eagle Street with uh, Picassos and Motherwells and Mondrians, and legislators came through and scratched their heads. Um, one, one of them suggested that this stuff should be referred to the Committee on Pornography. Um, <laughs> they, they really, it was a clash of cultures, if you will, um, I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall. Mm-hmm. Now,
0: again, back to his years as, as governor of, of New York, uh, 59 to 73, there was growth in the state university. I mean, his name was legendary he, when it really was university.
1: He really created The Sun- arts. existed s- a name only. Yep. And the fact is, when he took office, there were about 40,000 students um, and nearly 300,000 when he left. Well, it was the world's largest educational. Uh, institution, Um, because he believed, and it wasn't just that he built buildings, which everyone knows about, but he tripled scholarship assistance. He democratized higher education, uh, because he really believed, you know, he said, if you don't have a good education or good health, then I think society has let you down. That's a pretty sweeping view of things.
0: Yeah, it almost sounds like somebody who wants a single-payer health plan.
1: Uh, you know what? <laughs> he, he was trying to push health insurance at the state level from the mid-'60s on. And then, of course, he realized that it was only something that could be addressed at the national level. But, but and was and talking... that, in some ways, is a metaphor for his whole governorship. New York State was so far out in front of other states. In the mid-'60s, New York was spending more to fight water pollution. In the Hudson and New York Harbor and elsewhere, than, than the federal government was spending yep. in 50 states. Well, uh, or, you know, all kinds of urban renewal, uh, mass transit, uh, you, you name it, cause after cause after cause. You know, New York was out in front. By the time he left Albany, I think he realized that he had really pushed the state up to the very limit and maybe beyond the limit of what any one state could afford.
0: Yes, because what he was doing with all this spending, really, was, and it led to higher taxes, borrowing. He doesn't sound like today's Republicans. What kind of
1: Republican was he? Well, he wasn't, uh, but but you know what? There is a Republican tradition, and in New York, a proud one. Go back to Tom Dewey, go back to uh, Teddy Roosevelt. They are what, what, believe it or not, people call progressive conservatives. That is to say they're people deeply wedded to the private enterprise system. And, and Rockefeller certainly was that. He told Bill Buckley, you know, who has more to conserve than me? But they also recognize that for all of its attractions, you know, capitalism is imperfect and it produces inequities. And it is the special responsibility of its friends, conservatives if you will, to anticipate and address those. In other words, you practice reform. So you can avoid revolution. That's the heart of Theodore Roosevelt's republicanism. You could say the same thing, actually, about Franklin Roosevelt uh, mm-hmm. during the Depression. But you're right. It, it seems um, like another planet from today's conservative right of center, mm-hmm. government is the enemy sort of approach. Government was not the enemy mm-hmm. uh, where, where Nelson Rockefeller was concerned.
0: Andrew Cuomo recently said at his father's funeral that, that Mario Cuomo, who was another New York governor, never yeah. ran for president because Mario didn't want to. Reminds me of your title on his own terms. Uh, Rockefeller, yeah, yeah. more openly I mean, Nelson than Cuomo, Rockefeller went wanted his to be president. But in his personal it was, life, for example, he divorced his first wife in 1962, which made it hard for him to get the nomination.
1: Yeah. But you, it's interesting. You know, 50 years later, you wonder whether it would have the same impact. Mm. Uh, but you're right. Uh, it had it was a profound event um sort of in the history, not only of Nelson Rockefeller but of the Republican party um but I don't think the divorce um, caused Rockefeller to lose the White House. I think by then the Republican party was already mutating, if you will um toward the right toward Barry Goldwater's vision, it was becoming a Southern and a Western party. You know, some of this is geographical. Rockefeller was the face of the old Eastern establishment, which um, had basically, frankly, imposed, as far as the right was concerned, imposed its will for too long. And by 1964, they thought it was their turn. And that's why that opening scene is so important, because the next morning, The Republican Party was a different party. It was no longer Nelson Rockefeller's party, and it never has been ever since.
0: Mm. Nelson Rockefeller dies at age 70, 1979, apparently while alone and naked in the presence of the young art historian Megan Marshak. Did he die having sex, and and what happened to Megan Marshak?
1: Um, I didn't peek through the keyhole, but I think you can surmise... um, uh, I think it informed surmise, uh, would lead you to that conclusion. Um, my account, and it is certainly the fullest yet, is really begins with the cover-up, because it's the cover-up hastily improvised that unraveled really within 24 hours uh, that led to, in many ways, Rockefeller's posthumous humiliation. And, and he became almost a punchline you know, for a whole generation of of comics. Um, she um, left um, New York several years later, lives on the West Coast, is married, and in 35 years has never spoken uh, publicly about the events of that evening, which in some ways tells you something.
0: Mm. And I believe you've said that uh, although... You cover this story extensively, or Rockefeller's death. You didn't uh, discuss his uh, his affairs with his uh, surviving uh, ex-wife.
1: No, I had a, a a delightful half day with Happy Rockefeller, who, uh, um, needless to say, she said, "I don't do interviews." And we talked. We talked about that night, and she was very candid, and um, you will find it. Um, reproduced uh, uh the complete conversation and um the last meal they had together and uh and what he said to her when he left um and her response oh, it's all there uh, along with the story of of how they became involved and uh, subsequently uh, married in 1963 um but to me quite frankly the historically important thing about that night is, again, it's a game changer. After that night, the press, and not just in New York, had a different definition of what was public and what was private. It didn't begin with Gary Hart. In a lot of ways, Gary Hart in some ways was a victim of his own behavior, but he was a victim of the new mores, if you will, that the press had adopted, beginning with, again, this botched attempt uh, by those around Rockefeller, not including Mrs. Rockefeller, by the way, uh, to, uh, to cover up what had happened.
0: One of the major crises that Rockefeller faced uh, when he was governor was the Attica prison riot 1971, yes. 39 people died, and yep. apparently one of the keys was and Rockefeller, Nelson Rockefeller refused to go to Attica, afraid he, he would have made the situation worse. Uh, was he right?
1: Well and well that's a great question and you know I uh I think readers will I I know I've heard from a number of them who are debating that I mean 40 years later we're still debating that what is new I think what happened um is that people have conflated over the years two two things his decision not to go which I think you could argue either way he believed there was a principle involved that if the governor went um you know Then what about next time? And and there was actually a tradition in New York. Governor Lehman, for example, had been in this situation and had refused to go, and uh, things turned out a lot better than they did at Attica. But they conflated that decision, which at least is arguable, with the botched way that the state retook the prison uh, a couple days later, which nobody really can defend and which Rockefeller made worse by rushing out to defend what was in many ways uh, indefensible. Mm -hmm. So the fact of the matter is, though, he was haunted by that for the rest of his life. Uh, He gave the impression of a very tough guy um, who was willing to um, accept whatever came with the job, and he did. But in fact, uh, it, 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 it stayed with him. Uh, for the rest of his life. and um he one of the surprising things in this book is he was a much more sensitive person um in some ways a much more vulnerable person than he went on hmm um, in
0: fact it, oh some time back you mentioned that he had dyslexia had difficulty yeah. reading while young you quote him extensively with uh the, the poor spelling that he used in his uh in yeah. his uh personal m a u l no one, one development there or one thing that I was fascinated to read you uh, say that Rockefeller kind of became known as the leader who, so, you know, he maybe knew he would not usually be the smartest one in the room. So he surrounded himself with experts. Uh, the, yeah, the first that was one that again that was mo- advice Kissinger. from his mother.
1: Remember, he, he never heard the word dyslexia until he was 50 years old. He went through life just thinking he had uh, a subpar IQ. And his mother said, look, surround yourself with people who are smarter than you. Well, that worked both ways. The fact is he put together, and people, old-timers will still tell you, uh, a remarkable team of very highly talented people in Albany uh, to help him in the governing process. The flip side, of course, was that, you know, in some ways he became dependent on all of these people that he could afford Um, He he listened to too many people. If you're running for president, ultimately, you have one person. You have a Jim Farley, or you have a Karl Rove, um, and or you listen to your own gut. Unfortunately, Nelson Rockefeller had access to so many resources uh, that it really worked to his disadvantage.
0: Mm. I've been reading the the part about uh, Rockefeller during World War II, didn't serve in the military, yeah. but he was an important uh, deputy of FDR, the Democratic president, trying to do something
1: yeah. to turn he, Latin
0: America toward, you know, he, being more pro-American. He was
1: Thirty-two years old when FDR put him in charge, in effect, of, of Latin America, and um, and he embodied. Uh, it's funny; he he always believed that the, you know his countrymen didn't pay enough attention to the rest of our hemisphere. And first, of course, he was, he was combating Nazi influence in South America. But even before the war was over, he was, you know, one of the surprising things, he was really a militant anti-communist. And he was already developing economic development programs and, and health programs and educational programs uh, designed almost as a one-man foreign aid program to, to fight off the spread of communism. Um, which also, you know, brings us the United Nations. Uh, Lots of people know he was responsible for bringing the U.N. building to Manhattan. What a lot of people don't realize is at the original meeting of the U.N., uh, he teamed up with Latin America to rewrite the U.N. charter to allow for the creation of what they call defensive military alliances uh, to fight communism. Well, that led to NATO. And imagine the story of the Cold War without NATO. I mean, it's, it's, again, one of those countless, uh, historically significant but, but relatively unknown uh, contributions that he made.
0: It's an interesting thing to, for me to read. I mean, he's, he's a Rockefeller, one of the richest uh, families <laughs> in the world. And he never and forgot ha- it. What's that?
1: He never forgot it. No. Um, and, and, go ahead. But his political success, of course, in many ways, was his ability to transcend it. You know, that, that wonderful scene, the famous blintz tour, he's running against Averill Harriman, right. who's got $75 million of his own in the, in the bank. And he goes down to the Lower East Side, um, and he's eating blintzes. Mm-hmm. And um, going, and of course that's a metaphor, he's going from, from restaurant to restaurant, kosher restaurant to kosher restaurant. And of course what he demonstrated was, uh, contrary to what everyone expected of a Rockefeller, that he had this extraordinary personal touch, that he could connect with people whose lives were so totally dissimilar um, from his own. Uh, that's when, really for the first time, people realized, whatever it is, this guy's got it.
0: Mm. But he couldn't remember your name.
1: No. No, hiya, fella. Um, there are people on his staff who've been around him twenty years. who said, "You know, he called. He called me fella." Um, <laughs> you know, it's one of those bizarre contradictions. He couldn't remember your name, but he could remember how much social spending or education spending Rockland County got. You know, during his second term. I mean, he <laughs> he remembered what he needed to remember.
0: Mm. Also, uh, one um, major development during his uh, governorship we haven't uh, brought up with you are the so-called Rockefeller Drug Laws, 1973, very stiff. Why did he do that?
1: Well, he was of the school of thought, and again, it worked both ways. His great strength was he believed, sincerely believed, there was no such thing as a problem that couldn't be solved. That was his great strength. His great weakness was he believed sincerely that there was no such thing as a problem that could not be solved. And what do I mean by that? The the famous drug laws, the punitive drug laws, passed in 1973 and only chipped away at over the intervening years. Uh, Today they're seen as draconian. They weren't in 1973, but nevertheless, the fact is they were the third drug program. The first two that Rockefeller had tried, which were much more therapeutic, if you will, and less punitive, um, had failed, he said to a friend you know i've spent i 've wasted a billion dollars fighting drugs he he couldn 't leave it alone, and since the first two programs had failed, he would give it a third try and I remember his brother Lawrence told me that you know if he 'd won a fifth term in Albany, there would have been a fourth drug program when he realized that the third one wasn 't working. Hmm. I mean for better or worse, sometimes for better and worse he was convinced that sooner or later, you know, he was going to find the solution to any problem.
0: Mm. What uh, impresses me, or, or interests me, I should say, reading about his early life, and it's so different from the life of quote-unquote normal people, I mean, he spends all this time uh, trying to get more money out of his, his father, and, <laughs> and then, you know, the next thing, you know, he goes to Dartmouth, maybe he has trouble, but he really works hard, hard-working uh, a yeah. student he apparently didn't drink but you know maybe he started chasing right. the w- women and st- chasing women and strict, so forth all of a sudden, I mean, that's how he gets to the white house i mean it almost seems incredible he didn't ha actually i mean work for his family in in
1: new york city but it's just so different it was different but on the other hand he was he he to the family it seemed much more radically different the thought that that a rockefeller remember John D., the old man, founder of Standard Oil, at one point was the most hated man in America. Uh, his, his maternal grandfather, Nelson Aldrich, was the second most hated man in America, uh, the Republican boss of the Senate at a time when the Senate was really owned by special interests. So it was not a very promising lineage. But, I mean, to the, to the Rockefellers, the amazing thing was that one of them would actually go into public service And even more, that he would put his name on the ballot and subject himself to to popular referendum, if you will. That's what they found amazing.
0: Richard Norton Smith, I thank you very much uh, for joining us again. The book is called On His Own Terms, A Life of Nelson Rockefeller. It's been a pleasure talking with you, sir. Have a good day. Pleasure's
1: all mine. Thanks for your interest.